6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 5 and 6. Verse 5, Better it is that thou shouldest not vow, than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel or the messenger or the preacher that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? So the main sin that's really focused here is making a vow and not keeping it. That, I think, is pretty straightforward. God, uh, God uh, hears what we say and holds us to our promises, unless they're so absurd that uh, he could only dismiss them. You often hear, how many of us probably, you often hear people who are sick make rash promises in the form of a vow, and then once they're healed, they seem to evaporate. In, in, in loss of memory or whatever. I'm reminded, I was driving in a, uh, with a couple of financiers back east once. They were sharing stories as we were driving. We had an Irishman doing the driving in the back seat. There was a Jewish associate of mine that was, started, they started sh- sharing Irish and Jewish humor. I'll never forget Bernie telling the story about the merchant, the suicidal merchant. He's a merchant. He was in a study at night, very down because things were. He was really, he was really depressed, and he was about to open the desk drawer and uh, pull out a gun and end it. And he was that desperate. His wife Esther recognized, sensed that something was up. She came into the study and realized what was there, and he went through his litany of concerns. And she says, uh, "Your man, where's your faith? You should, you know, uh, pray to God and work the angles." He says, "You know, I think you're right. In fact, I have a good idea." So the next morning, he went down the street to the local synagogue. He went to the synagogue. No one was around. He prayed to the God of Israel to, to if, that if he would help repair his businesses, he would give half his profits to the Jewish charity. Well, as the weeks went by, things went from bad to worse. His most loyal employees quit. His key customers evaporated. Things went from bad to worse. Once again, he's in the study that night, ready to just scratch. And uh, once again, Esther intervenes. And scolds him, says, you, 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 prayer's not a one-time thing. You've got to be a man of faith. You need to continue to pray and work the angles. He says, you yeah, know, you're really right. So he, he says, i got another idea. Next morning, he goes down around a few blocks to the local Christian church. Looks around, there's no one around. He looks inside, there's no one there. So he slips into one of the pews. He decides to pray to the God of the New Testament. If you help me with my business, I'll give half my profits to the local Christian charities. Well, in the coming weeks, the strangest things happened. Business started to pick up. Costs started to go down. One store became seven. And he's in the dining room celebrating his newfound prosperity with Esther, saying, you know, our God is smarter than theirs because he knew I wouldn't keep my promises. See? Now, the minute Bernie caught you laughing at that, he would accuse you of being anti-Semitic. See? <laughs> but uh, 
what made it particularly uh, memorable to me because uh, he was at the time defending himself, I think, in seven lawsuits for not keeping his promises. So I thought the thing had a very uh, poignant sense of humor. But moving on to something more serious. Um, verse 7, For in the multitude of, thy, of dreams and many words there are also divers vanities, but fear thou God. What this seems to be alluding to is that people make often empty vows because they live in sort of a religious dream world. They think words are the same as deeds, and the worship is not serious, and the words are not dependable. You know, they enjoy the good feelings you get when you when you make promises to God, but they do themselves more harm than good because they dream about filling their vows, in their imagination at least, but they never get around to doing it. And uh, they practice, if you will, a make-believe religion. So this is, doesn't glorify God, it doesn't build Christian character. Uh, Psalm 66 says, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. It's a commitment. I'm reminded when I was in the Soviet Union um, on a project, and uh, they have an expression there that, uh, in fact, I remember Al and I were looking out the window right outside the Kremlin. There's an old, old church being restored, and there was two workmen every day. We'd watch them down there. They'd start, and, they'd, and they'd move some bricks from one pile over to another pile. We'd watch them do that one day. Very slowly examining the bricks, and they'd move it from pile A to pile B. A day or so later, we have to look out the same window of our, our place, and uh, <laughs> we saw them doing the same thing, but going from pile B back to pile A. Now, it's one thing to be sort of... We, 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 we didn't... You know, they're obviously not accomplishing anything. We found out Why? See, they had a job. When the church was finished, they were out of work. They wouldn't know what would be next, you see. And so the expression we discovered in those days in the Soviet Union was, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us, see. So it was a... But it's, it almost... Uh, I was reminded by this when I see this here. You know, it's sort of like we pretend to pray and God pretends to bless us. See? It's a very, very an- analogous possibility here. And uh, when we rob the Lord of the worship and honor due Him, we're also robbing ourselves of the blessings that He bestows on those who worship Him in spirit and truth. Well, the second admonishment of uh, Solomon is don't rob others. All that was ways we rob ourselves. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting the judgment and justice in a province. Marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. And and uh, at the, it means in, in terms of will or purpose in the Hebrew. So it's interesting, you see, what, what Solomon's just done from verse 7 and 8, he's left the temple now, and he's gone to the city hall for us, if you will. There he witnesses, again, corruption, insincerity, what have you, by the politicians. The government officials are violating the law by using their authority to help themselves and not serve others. Is really what we're seeing here. And that's a practice condemned by Moses in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, all through the Torah, of course. I'm intrigued. He says, marvel not at the matter. In other words, Solomon says, don't be surprised when you see this. While he didn't approve of the practices, he, he knew too much about uh, the human way of doing things to expect anything different from the complicated bureaucracy in Israel. And here's the king talking, by the way. It's interesting to realize the perspective. We have a very wealthy king, a very wise king, also the guy that's a king, commenting on the bureaucracies he himself is uh, aware of. And uh, 
The NIV takes verse 8 a little differently. It says, one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them are both others higher still. Or the way the uh, Living Bible, Ken Taylor's uh, paraphrase says, that instead of a poor man getting a fair hearing, it says, the matter is lost in red tape and bureaucracy. I'm always intrigued by, I think I quoted this before, but Ambrose Beers defines politics as a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles. He says, the conduct of public affairs for private advantage. How painfully true that seems to be. Now, verse 9 is a difficult one to translate. Not all the translations agree on this. But the general idea seems to be that in spite of the corruption and bureaucracy, it's better to have organized government and a king over the land than to have anarchy. So it's really speaking of that almost in economist terms. See, a few dishonest people may profit from corrupt practices, but everybody benefits if there's at least organized authority in place. And the ideal, of course, is to have a government that's honest and efficient. But that's a, you know, something devoutly to be wished. Uh, Lord Acton wrote to Bishop Mandel Creighton back in 1887, a thing you often hear quoted. He says, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Solomon's investigation seems to bear this out. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. He previous, remember chapter 2, he talked about the futility of wealth in broad terms. And some of these ideas are repeated here. But what he's going to do in his sermon here going on, he's going to demolish some of the myths that people hold about wealth. And because they hold these illusions about wealth, they rob themselves of blessings God has for them. See, he said, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is vanity. See, one of the myths is that wealth brings satisfaction. And I couldn't remember who the guy on Wall Street uh, said that years ago. He says, I've been rich, I've been poor, but rich is better. And we always chuckle at that. But at the same time, um, see, some people treat money as if it were a god. They love it. They make sacrifices for it. They think it can do anything. Their minds are filled with thoughts of it. Their lives are controlled by getting it and guarding it. And yet when they have it, and they assume when they have it, they'll expense a sense of security. And uh, you often hear people say, well, money isn't, may not be the greatest thing in life, but it's way ahead of whatever's number two. So, And that's a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that it's the same thing. I remember a friend of mine on Wall Street says, Chuck, if your biggest problems are money, you're in great shape. You're in great shape if the biggest problem you have are money problems. Why? Because you always get more money. You can't get more time. You can't get more health. And these other problems are addressable. But someone who has money is never satisfied with the money because the human heart has been designed to be satisfied only by relationship with God. Money doesn't buy that. Jesus said, Take heed and be aware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. You know, he that dies with the most toys wins. You see the, the cynical cracks made in the tongue in jest, except tragically they're not really in jest. Good humor is always built around a germ of truth, and people really sort of operate as if that were true. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, well known to all of you, I'm sure, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Not all evil, all kinds of evil, what the term really means. Um, which, while some coveted after, and they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves, they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. What good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? You know, it's interesting. There's no question about it. You need a certain amount of money to survive in this world, to live in this world. But the money itself is not a cure-all for all kinds of problems. In fact, usually the increase in wealth starts to create problems you didn't even know you had. Solomon mentions uh, one. 
relatives and friends start showing up, enjoying the hospitality. And they always joke, you're, you're grateful when the relatives show up, and you're even more grateful when they go home. But there's other examples, of course. Uh, you can watch the, you know, the tax agent that shows up because you owe more money than you thought and so on. But John Wesley, the co-founder of Methodist Church, told his people, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And he himself would have been a very wealthy man, except he gave it very generously everywhere. Um, let's go on to verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. The Living Bible renders the man who works hard sleeps well, he that, whether he eats little or much, but the rich must worry and suffer insomnia. See, the myth that, uh, that uh, Solomon's addressing here is that wealth brings peace of mind. And Solomon's indicating that possessing wealth is no guarantee that your nerves will be calm, that your sleep is sound, and so forth. Here he was king, very wealthy, very wise, and he was also running the place. You'd think he would seek be secure. He says, not so. He says, the common laborer sleeps better than the rich man. That's, his, that's really his contention. The uh, rich man seems to eat too much, and then he lies awake all night with an upset stomach, is sort of the thought, perhaps. But I think Solomon had something far greater in mind here. Um, I think many preachers have used the example of John D. Rockefeller in their sermons as an example of a man whose life was almost ruined by wealth. At the age of 53, he was the world's only billionaire. In those days, a billion was a lot of money, earning about a million dollars a week. But he was sick and he lived on crackers and milk, could not sleep because of worry. When he started giving his money away, his health changed radically and he lived to celebrate his 98th birthday. And his life is used often as an example. <laughs> I'm always reminded when I get into these discussions, I'm always reminded about the MasterCard slogan, you know. There's something his money can't buy for everything else. There's MasterCard. I think it's a great slogan. It's good to have things, money that can't buy, provided you don't lose the things that money can't buy. But verse 13, There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. So now he's attacking the idea that wealth provides security. And he, in effect, is going to paint a picture of two rich men. One hoarded all his wealth and, and ruined himself by becoming a miser. The other man became uns, made some unsound investments and lost his wealth. And he's right back to where he started from. No estate to leave his son. And uh, he spent the rest of his days in darkness and discouragement and defeat, and he did not enjoy life. And so like all of us, he brought nothing in at his birth, and he took nothing out of the world at his death. And that's, those thoughts are in Job 1, Psalm 49, 1 Timothy 6, elsewhere. Those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there's nothing in his hand. In other words, he doesn't even have a son to leave it to, is the profile here. As he came forth from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that laboreth for the wind? All his days also youth in darkness, and he hath sorrow and wrath in his sickness. This is a complicated subject because you see these people, and I think in a sense, at least one time I was among them, that um, face a collapse of their economic world, growing, building companies, whatever, and when their circumstance, whatever, kept, it happens that they collapse you often wonder, how can they consider suicide? You see, hear about Wall Street types jumping out of windows in 1929, that sort of thing. 
You think, how can they be that desperate? It's only money. What, what we fail to understand is that their identity can be so wrapped up in that career or that company or that enterprise of whatever kind that unless you've been there, you don't, can't appreciate that you, you can't separate just the, the economics. So you go bankruptcy, start again. You know, that's, uh, no, it's not that simple because of identity. And I, I, I vividly remember that period that we went through some years ago. I mean, this might be illuminating. You know, uh, most people think that entrepreneurs, these guys that start companies and so forth, are motivated by money. And that, that's naive. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, uh, uninformed. There have been literally over a hundred studies of what makes up an entrepreneur, what makes up the kind of guy that has the gumption and whatever to start from scratch an enterprise, to, to, to the entrepreneur in contrast to just the, the manager executive. And the studies have shown again and again they're not money motivated. They're, they're, they're impassioned to see something get done. And money is simply the way to keep score. The money isn't the drive. It's just a scorecard. And unless you understand that, you won't understand the dynamics of these people who get so desperate when their enterprise collapses for some reason. And again, that's when you begin to realize that it's not just dollars, it's a question of idolatry. It's really a question of idolatry. All of this reminds us, of course, the Lord's uh, a parable about the rich young fool in Luke 12. The man you know, thought he had all his problems uh, solved when he became rich and he was faced with you know, building bigger barns for his wealth. He thought he was safe and secure for years to come, and that night he died. And that's the point that we all have. And money provided no security at all. Quite the contrary. You understand that Solomon is not advocating neither poverty nor riches, because both have their problems. In Psalm 30, Solomon said, Two things have I required of thee, deny them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and denied thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Solomon is suggesting that either boundary has its hazards in effect. So he continues, Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. In the closing verses of this chapter, he's going to emphasize again the importance of accepting our station in life, wherever it is, and enjoying the blessings God gives us. It's almost like the, the Latin motto, carpe diem, seize the day. Live for now, wherever you are. You'll be satisfied both where you are and your capacity to enjoy it is itself a gift of God. Now, uh, this idea of, of uh, accepting labor uh, faithfully, enjoying the good things of life, and accept all that as a gift of God is something he, uh, he counseled us back in chapter 2 and chapter 3 on several occasions, and he's going to repeat three more times before the conclusion of this, of this book. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answered him in the joy of his heart. So I think he's suggesting three things, three ways to get wealth. You can work for it, you can steal it, you can receive it as a gift, in effect. And the psalmist saw the blessing of God as a gift to those who work, and who accept that work as a favor of God. The Living Bible says to, to enjoy your work and to accept your lot in life that is indeed 
a gift from God. He adds another thought here. The ability to enjoy life's blessings is a gift itself. You have the gift of God, whatever they are. You also, the fact that you have the capacity to enjoy it is a separate issue, also a gift. How tragic it is, how tragic it is when you see people whose lives are ruined because they don't have the capacity to enjoy what they've got. And uh, always aspiring to that which they don't have because they somehow presume that's the answer. And he's going to expand on this whole thought in the next chapter and point out to the point to those people that are unhappiness in their wealth because they're not able to enjoy it. We should thank God for food. Now, this may sound strange, but I, I find myself, whenever I eat and so forth, I, I'm fascinated, as the guys come from a systems background, I'm astonished at the complexity of our digestive system and its coupling with our environment. If you realize the creation itself, our own needs, and the complex process by which we take in uh, what we call food of all kinds, how the body extracts what it needs and passes what it does, and that whole system is so complicated it defies even adequate simulation on our computers. We talk a lot about, you know, this all happened by accident. It's so complicated that engine, we, we still, to this day, I, I, I have a great cynicism and skepticism about most of what you read about nutrition, because they're guessing, the, uh, for lots of reasons. But in other words, <laughs> I think what uh, uh, Psalm's saying, it's like saying, thank God not only for the food that we eat, but for our ability to, to get our nourishment and enjoyment from it. And I think what uh, verse 20 suggests here is that uh, the person who rejoices in God's daily blessings will never have any regrets. The person who does that will not need to look back and sorrow on his past, for God gives him joys, the way Ken Taylor paraphrases the Living Bible. I always remember Psalm 90.12. So, Lord, teach us to number our nanoseconds so that we maybe apply our hearts to wisdom. That's the Missler paraphrase. Number our days. Uh, I guess the Living Bible says another way, verse 20, it says, the people are thankful for God will not dwell over much upon the passing years. The New English Bible uh, handles it that way. Well, now, in chapter 6, Psalms going to talk about the futility of wealth. He could have just as easily taken Matthew 6.33 as his text. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. But I think the important thing is, before I finish this chapter, is basically that we should... uh, Love the Lord, accept the lot He assigns us, and enjoy the blessings that He graciously bestows. That's going to be the theme of Solomon through the rest of this. If we focus more on the gifts than the giver, we're guilty of idolatry. If we accept His gifts but complain about them, we're guilty of ingratitude. Grumbling is a sin. That's disturbing. As we read the uh, wanderings of Israel in the wilderness... We marvel that they, no matter what he did, you know, provide for them and everything. Millions of people wandering in the desert, taken care of supernaturally, and and uh, they're grumbling all the time. And we look at them and say, "Gee, that's sinful." And yet, we do the same thing: mumbling about this, mumbling about that. I do. I, I'm, I'm sure you don't, but I do. Anyway, chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is a common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul, of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. It is an evil disease. That's his, his quick summary of, of all that. And uh, Is life really a dead-end street? Seems to be sometimes. Sometimes we... Uh, don't reach our goals, or when we reach our goals, we don't be fulfilled when we get there. 
Um, we sometimes overlook that sometimes the trip is the issue, not the destination. More than one person in life, in the Bible, have, have uh, been so discouraged that they wanted to die. If you felt that way, you're joining guys like Moses in Numbers 11, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Job in chapter 3, and again in chapter 7, Jeremiah in chapter 8 and 15, and Jonah. All these guys at one came to a point where they sought death. Of all the verses in the Bible that I don't understand, the one in Revelation still bothers me. I have no idea what it means uh, when it says that men shall seek death and not find it. I have no idea what that means. I make all kinds of conjectures. I've read all the commentaries. They don't know either. They also just make conjectures. You would think in Revelation you get to that point where if you wanted to die, you'd find a way. You know, you can conjure up all kinds of ways you'd think would be certain. They wouldn't even be able to find the pieces. But there it is. Men will seek death and not find it. And it may be referring to something more the flavor of what we're dealing with right here. Is that uh, they get so discouraged that... Uh, that uh, death isn't a respite either. Probably one of the main problems in life is that it confronts us with too many mysteries that we can't fathom, too many puzzles we can't solve. See, for life to be satisfying, it has to make sense, and if it doesn't make sense, we get frustrated. We can't see a purpose in it, especially when people go through deep suffering. We start to question God and even wonder if life is worthwhile. And clearly, the desire of death is a rejection of God and God's control and God's divinity and God's purpose in our life. I think that was the only thing that kept me from doing something really stupid 10 years ago. I had a $5 million key man policy. I mean, it would solve a lot of problems. I remember April 30th that year when it finally expired, it was a relief off my back. It took away the one outlet that I, that haunted me for a while. But the only thing that kept me from doing something really stupid was that I recognized that would be a denial of God's control. He's either in control or he isn't. And I hope I never forget what that mood was like. It wasn't a mood for a few days. It went on for a year. But I hope I never forget what that was like. Because God is either in control or he's not. And that's the issue. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.